Well, this certainly is my uh, favorite time of the year. I find that uh, it is not so much the favorite time of the year for my family because I am singing more than normal during this time. And uh, if, if you've heard me sing, you realize that's not a good thing. Um, but I love singing Christmas songs. In fact, uh, I often find myself singing songs or humming songs, and I'm trying to figure out how in the world did I get that in my head. So I'll just start doing the whole drummer boy thing and have no idea how it got there. But oftentimes it's because uh, my wife is singing a song or my kids are singing a song, and I'll just start to sing a song thinking it came from me, but I'm actually just hearing and imitating what I've heard from others. And the reality is, is that's kind of how we're wired, aren't we, as human beings? We are in the habit of imitating others. That goes for our actions as well. And we will copy and mimic um, those in our family. But we also copy and mimic personalities, people that we don't know, people we see on TV, people that we see in the media. I remember listening to uh, a sermon uh, in 2018 and it was Dr. Al Mohler who was at Grace Church of the Valley. And I'll never forget, I was in the backyard, I was doing some, some chores there, and uh, Dr. Moeller said that eventually the church, the congregation, will begin to look and sound like their pastor. And that was his introduction before he brought Pastor Scott Artavanis up to preach. And I remember that specifically because at that time, I was really eager to sit under the kind of man who was just a faithful, godly, biblically-minded pastor. And it was actually that morning that we had made the decision to go down to Grace Church of the Valley and to serve under Pastor Scott Artavanis. Um, I wanted to be like Pastor Scott. And I think that for you, um, as you think about your life, your family, uh, it says a lot that you're here because in some ways, as you listen to the word every single Sunday being preached, in some ways you're saying, hey, we, we're to follow our pastor, we're to emulate our pastor, we're to walk in a manner similar to our pastor. And so I feel the weight of responsibility and I understand what it's like to sit in a pew and to look to a man and make sure that that man who's preaching the truth is actually living the truth. But today, as we come to our passage of Scripture, we have something very similar. Because what the Apostle Paul is saying is that we, as believers, are supposed to imitate someone. And obviously, we know that person is the Lord Jesus Christ. We've seen that all over Philippians 2. And as by nature, as those that imitate other people, we look at, I look at my kids and I want them to imitate me, and they do. Sometimes they say things and sing things and make funny noises like their dad does, but it's the good and the bad. But when I look at my kids, I want there to be a holy mimicry. I want my son to study the Bible like me. I want my daughter to love like me. I want, I want my kids to serve like me. And if you're a parent, you know this, you want them to do it way better than me, better than you. Well, Paul wants nothing different. He's looking at this church. He's writing to this church in Philippi and saying, church, I love you. We've got a special bond. We've known each other for very long. It's been 10 years now, and there's nothing more that I want for you then you follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. 
And it's almost as if the Philippian church says, yes, we know that, we love Jesus, we want to follow in Jesus, but to follow in the steps of Jesus Christ is sometimes daunting. I mean, he's perfect. He's the God-man. Of course he knows how to be humble. Of course he's going to live a perfect, obedient life because he's Jesus. And you look at that and you say, well, what about me? I'm, I'm a sinner. I'm selfish. Being called to selfless service is very difficult to do. How in the world am I going to do that? And so what Paul does is, says, okay, well, let me help you out. Look at my life. And you say, well, Paul, that's not that encouraging because you're the Apostle Paul. You've seen visions of Jesus. But then Paul says, well, look at Timothy's life. And we looked at Timothy's life last week. And now today we come to our passage of Scripture and we're looking at an average Joe, just a regular guy sitting in a pew, nothing super spectacular about this man Epaphroditus, but it's another example, another pattern for us to set our eyes upon and say, I can follow in the steps of Epaphroditus. So today we're going to spend most of our time talking about what incarnational models of selflessness and sacrifice look like, and it is in the person of Epaphroditus. Now, again, if you're joining us for the first time, as some of you are, we're in Philippians 2. We've been here for a while, and we've been meditating on the majesty and the the marvel of Christ's humiliation. And we're preparing ourselves, even this week, to celebrate that as we look at the incarnation. And Philippians 2 is this just masterpiece of theology as Paul is taking us to the mountaintop of the Christ hymn and has shown us all that Jesus is, was, before the foundation of the world in glory, But then he humbled himself by becoming a man and coming to this earth. And it says he humbled himself more by taking the form of a servant. And he humbled himself even more by dying a death on a cross. And then he humbled himself even more in the sense that he was perfect and didn't deserve any of that. And he did that all for you and I. And so when we come to a passage of scripture like this and say, we can't do that, you got to realize that Jesus died so you can. He empowers you to have that same kind of selfless, sacrificing, humble mindset that he himself had. And so Paul, he's shown us, this is Jesus, this is me, this is Timothy. Now we come to verse 25 and we look at Epaphroditus. Let's pick up our text this morning in verse 25. Here's God's word to us. Paul writes, but I regard it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who was also your messenger and minister to my need, because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed, he was sick to the point of death. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I've sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in high regard, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to fulfill what was lacking in your service to me. Oh, Father, would you please help us in this moment, in this hour, Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Give us understanding, Lord, not just to gain knowledge and input, but so that we would live out these principles that we see clearly in your scriptures. Be our help, Spirit of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our 
message for this morning I've entitled Epaphroditus, The Profile of a Faithful Servant. Last week we looked at Timothy's sacrificial service. This week we're looking at Epaphroditus, who is a faithful servant. And as I studied this week, I was very eager to finish chapter 2, but I got to the point where I said, no, no, I want to just sit on this. And so we're looking just at verse 25. We'll spend our time looking at Epaphroditus' character, and his character is revealed in, in two ways, really. It's the way that Paul describes him, his own relationship with him. So Paul's perspective, he lists these, these things out. He says that Epaphroditus is my brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier. And then from the Philippians' perspective, he says that he is your messenger and minister. And if you're taking notes, here's our main idea. I'll say it twice. Epaphroditus is a model for us of Christ-like ministry, and his character and conduct provide us with a living example of Christ-minded humility. Once again, Epaphroditus is a model for us of Christ-like ministry, and his character and conduct provide us with a living example of Christ-minded humility. It's really easy as you take a look at the text, because what Paul does is he breaks it up in four major ideas. First there in verse 25, we have Paul's description of Epaphroditus' character. And what he does here in just this one verse in rapid fire succession, he unloads five terms, just one right after the other. And he does that to express his deep affection and praise for this man Epaphroditus. He calls him there, my brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier, your messenger, your minister to my needs. And it's real easy just to skip over that real quickly. But I think as we come to this text, it's important to recognize that there is no other Bible passage, no other Bible verse that just heaps this kind of uh, a fast rate, jam-packed positive attributes in such a short amount of space. It reminds me of Winston Churchill who once said of his political opponent, he said this, he has the genius for compressing a minimum of thoughts into a maximum of words. Did you get that? He's saying he, this guy talks a lot, but he doesn't say much. When you look at the Apostle Paul, that's never the case. The Apostle Paul will use a few words, but he says things with such, prof, what do you, how do you say that word, profundity? The Apostle Paul here, guided by the Spirit, says just a few short things about Epaphroditus, and yet they are so instructive for us in our walk as we pursue Christ-likeness. So today we're just on 25, and then we'll come back next week, and then we'll look at the rest of the chapter as we look today at his character, and then next week at his concern, his commendation, and his commitment. But before we get to Epaphroditus' character, let's find out what we know about him. So if I were to have you come up here and do a book report or a, a, a personal profile on Epaphroditus, what would you say? For some of you, you're like, I don't even know how to pronounce Epaphroditus. But, but what, what do we know about this guy? How many of you parents considered naming your child Epaphroditus? Uh, we thought that when we named Titus, Titus, it was like super unique until we found out that like everyone else is named Titus. But if you name your child Epaphroditus, you probably will be the only one. There's not a lot that's communicated to us about Epaphroditus. He's really not that well known. 
Timothy, on the other hand, is a different story because we have information after information about Timothy. In fact, two letters are actually written to Paul's young disciple in the faith, Timothy. But Epaphroditus, he's only mentioned here in 225 and then one more time later on in 418. He uh, was from a pagan background. We know that Paul, he'll tell us that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Timothy was part Jewish, part Gentile, had a Greek father, but Epaphroditus is all Gentile. That, that's his background. In fact, when we look at his name, it's a common name, and it's a pagan name. It comes from Aphrodite. And so his name was either derived or associated with this Greek goddess of love and beauty. And it's quite possible that the reason why he was named Epaphroditus was because his parents were cult worshipers of this false god. And we know that Jews and even those that were converted to Christianity normally didn't name their kids after heathen gods. So we don't walk around naming our kids like Adolf and Judas because, well, we just don't want that association. So we're clued here just by his name that he probably was not a believer, didn't grow up in a Christian home, had no experience or exposure to Christianity. But if his parents were not Aphrodite worshipers, then maybe they just liked his name because his name means charming or lovely or fascinating. All those things are true about his character, like we'll see. Some people think that Epaphroditus shortened his name to Epaphras because as you read through Paul's other letters, there's another guy who shows up and it's Epaphras. So some think that when he was converted, he changed his name, but I don't think you can make a legitimate case for that. I think the, the Epaphras of Colossians is just a different guy. Well, with some of that background, what can we learn about a fairly obscure guy mentioned in the Bible only twice? And why would we spend a whole entire sermon just on this one guy? Actually, two sermons on this one guy. I think you'll see that despite just these few verses that we have, Scripture has so much to say. And he's been forever memorialized and honored by both Paul and God. And here we are 2,000 years later studying just a simple man who was faithful. But what made him stand out among others? What distinguished him as a man of upstanding character? Well, let's take a look at his character. Look at what Paul says first. He is my brother, Adolphos. Now, it's not very shocking to us because we use that term all the time. How many of you this morning said good morning to a brother? Hey, brother. Good morning, brother. We're so used to calling one another brother or sister, but that was kind of a shock for me because growing up, the only person I called my brother was my, my brother. That was it. Unless I forgot your name. Then I was like, hey, brother, champ, dude, buddy, pal. But as Christians... When we use that term brother or sister, we mean something. We're communicating something about our relationship. That we've entered into a relationship with God and then we've entered into a relationship with one another. So there's something sweet and special about even calling one another brother. We have one father. We've been begotten by one spirit. And we've been united into one family, the family of God. That's why I do try to be a little bit more selective and careful with using that word. In fact, I found myself the other night just assuming that someone was a brother when they actually weren't. 
When I call someone brother or sister, and when you do that, you're addressing a sibling in the same household of God. And so it bears some weight. You're saying you are part of God's family and so am I. And there's an endearing camaraderie when we use that word. We are fellow children of God. And what Paul is saying is Epaphroditus, you are a true and genuine child of God like me. And we have this relationship. It's just important for you to hear this, that attending church doesn't make you a brother. It doesn't make you a true sister. Just because you show up to church when we gather, it doesn't mean that you're actually a part of the church. In the same way that when you're invited to a friend's family for a meal, you're not like, hey, I'm a part of the family now. You might say something like that, but you're not genuinely a part of that family. It's the same thing with coming to church. Just because you sit in the pew does not mean that you are part of the family of God. But Epaphroditus is, he is a true Christian, a true follower. You say, well, in the Bible, does it talk about false believers, false Christians, false brethren? And certainly it does. Paul says over and over again that there are false brethren. Twice in 2 Corinthians, Paul says there are such things as false apostles and false brothers. And so he says repeatedly to check yourself, test yourself to see if you're in the faith. You say, well, Dom, how do I ensure that I'm actually a believer, a Christian, part of the family of God? Well, turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. Let me give you just kind of a very helpful, surefire way to determine whether or not you're a true child of God and deserve that title, brother or sister. First John chapter 3, and look with me at verse 14. It can't get any clearer than this. This is what the Apostle John writes. We know that we have passed out of death into life. That is conversion, transformation, repentance, regeneration. We know this because, what does it say? We love the brothers. The one who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we have known love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. And then he gets even more practical. Look at verse 17. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. What the Apostle John says is one of the marks that you actually know that you're a child of God, a brother or sister in Christ, is your love for other brothers and sisters in Christ. And it manifests itself in good deeds. See, Paul had a special love and affection for Epaphroditus. And what's beautiful about this designation is he just doesn't throw it out there and want us to skip over it. I want us just to take a second to think about how significant it is for him to call Epaphroditus his brother. You say, Dom, why is it significant? Well, because what was their relationship like before? I mean, this guy's a pagan. He's worshiping a false god. His family is worshiping a false god. And yet, because of the gospel, that relationship has changed. You see, before coming to Christ, these two men would have actually despised one another. They're on two different sides of the fence. But Paul, he grew up a zealous Pharisee. 
culturally and religiously zealous in his pursuits. Not only was he like other Pharisees that abhorred Gentiles, but the way that they would have talked about Gentiles, especially pagans, they would have said, that's an uncircumcised dog. He wouldn't have said brother. And you think of Epaphroditus, who's giving himself to this false religion, but because of the gospel, that dividing wall has been torn down. And these brothers who would have never saw eye to eye, would have never had affection or love or camaraderie with one another, they're now brothers. The Apostle Paul, with clear eyes now, sees the futility of the performance-based religion. And Epaphroditus, also with clear eyes, sees the falsehood of his pagan idolatry. And both have set their sights on the propitiation of Jesus Christ on the cross, and it's united their hearts. And now they are brothers. But notice in the text, it doesn't just say he's a brother. What does he say? He says, he's my brother. It's very personal. It's deep in its affection. And you say, well, what what forges this kind of camaraderie and love? Well, it's their service together in the Lord's work. That's what unites their heart. They have a same mind, same soul, same goal, same cause. And I just want to ask you, church, do you know that God created you to have bonds like this? Not just acquaintances in church, not just associations in church, but when you come on a Sunday morning, I want you to look at one another and say, that is my brother, that is my sister. We are here not just to check the box of Sunday morning, but we're here, same cause, same goal, same soul. We love one another in our pursuit to make much of Christ. That is Paul, that is Epaphroditus, that is their relationship. And just as a reminder, before your cultural heritage, before your political affiliation, I've had people say, hey, are you conservative? Well, yeah, but that's, not, that's kind of like down here compared to, are you saved? Are you, are you one of Christ's own? Yes, that's what I want to be identified as. Not as someone who listens to Ben Shapiro or someone who listens to John MacArthur. I want to be known as a follower of Christ. I know you do too. Before your military associations, before your college fraternity, you are a part of God's family. Mike Riccardi, commenting on this brotherhood, he said this, no club or organization can take a racist religious zealot and a lawless pluralist or pluralistic pagan and change their hearts so that from the very depths of their being, they regard one another as brothers, as being a part of the same family. And when I look out here, even this morning, I recognize we all come from different backgrounds, different cultural heritages, but we're a family. Praise be to God for uniting our hearts in that way. Well, there's something else he says. When you're a part of God's family, you live together, you love together, but look, look, look what else. You work together. And that's the second term that Paul uses here. He says, my fellow worker. They're not only in the same family, but they're in the same field of work. This term, soon ergos, is pretty much unique to Paul. It's mentioned 12, no, 13 times in the Bible. 12 of them, Paul uses this. But fellow worker just describes labor, service, energy, deeds, actions. And what it's saying is these two men, they expended themselves. 
They labored diligently in service to the Lord, and they did it together. And you think about what an honor to come alongside the Apostle Paul and forever to be enshrined in the Scriptures as someone who was a fellow laborer. It's not that Epaphroditus was the only fellow laborer. Paul had many. There's Timothy that he mentions in Romans 16, who's a fellow laborer. Then there's Titus, Philemon. There's that sweet couple, Aquila and Priscilla, that he says are fellow laborers. Mark, Aristarchus, and Luke, and just a handful of others. But for Epaphroditus to make that list, man, what an honor. When Paul calls him a fellow worker, he's saying, look, you're not coming here to serve me. You're not beneath me. You're not a little peon, but we're standing side by side in this work and this effort to make much of Christ. I just want to remind you, church, that the Christian life is a life of work. Ministry is hard. It is laborious. And we're called to be workers, laborers together in the service of the Lord. No saint, no Christian has the luxury of just sitting back and letting other people serve them. Someone said that church is like a football game. You have 22 men desperately in need of rest being watched by thousands who are desperately in need of exercise. So some of you, you've heard of this, this principle. It's called the Pareto Principle. The Italian economist Vilfredo Pareto came up with this rule, and it proves true in the church. You familiar with this? Some of you know it as the 80-20 rule. It's also called the law of the vital few. But this is what it states, that roughly 80% of consequences come from 20% of causes. And in the church, what we see is that 80% of ministry is done by 20% of the people. Dave Early, in his book, Pastoral Leadership, wrote this. He said, in most churches, 20% of the church members do 80% of the work, and 20% of the members give 80% of the money. 20% of the members invite 80% of the guests. 20% of the members take up 80% of the pastor's time in counseling. And 20% of the members provide 80% of the leadership for the church. He said, in most churches, 20% of the programs and ministries yield 80% of the impact and spiritual fruit. And 20% of the members eat 20 or 80% of the food at a church social. I don't know if that's true. <laughs> that, might, that might be true for some of us. And even though that last part there is a little tongue-in-cheek, it's sad because in some churches it's 90-10. But Paul tells us very clearly, especially in Ephesians 4, that the pastor's responsibility, Nick and I as elders, we are responsible, we'll be accountable to the Lord. How well did you equip the saints for the work of ministry? You say, who's the one that does the ministry in a church? It's you. The church is the one to do the ministry. That doesn't exclude us because we are doing our role, but it is the church that does the work of ministry. Every single saint needs to be serious about using their gifts, spending their lives, pouring out their resources to serve the Lord's church. Another way to say that is, look, Christianity, if you signed up, it's not just a spectator sport. You're not just sitting in the, in the bleachers watching but every single Christian needs to be actively engaged in using your gifts uniquely. I don't know how many times where I've sat with someone and 
counsel, they're open up the Bible, and I'm, I'm trying to love and serve someone, and then someone else comes along, and they're just much more effective than me. And what is it? Is it because this person has a better Bible education or a greater love? or I don't know. But that person was much more influential in another person's life, and I'm perfectly fine with that, as long as that person is maturing and God is getting the glory. We need to be reminded, church, that we didn't just add Jesus to our list of hobbies. And church isn't just something that we kind of add to the schedule as we pursue the American dream and go after all of our goals and responsibilities. No, you have been saved. You exist to serve the bride of Christ. And what a tremendous honor and privilege that is. Jesus said, greater has Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And that's what we do every single day in our service to one another. We lay down our lives for each other, involving ourselves in the work of ministry. So as we come to this this last term, this, this second term, do you have a reputation of being a fellow worker? Is that how people know you? Does someone describe you as someone who serves in that way? And if not, you have to ask the question, why not? Why are you not working for the Lord? And you say, well, Dom, I'm, I'm busy. I've got other responsibilities. I've got other things to do. My, my schedule is full. It's one thing to say that to me, but one day you will come face to face with the Lord and he'll ask you the same question. And what are you going to tell Jesus? Are you going to make excuses because you were too busy? Now, don't, don't hear me wrong. Because there are seasons of life where you need to step it back. You need to prioritize. Maybe family, maybe job. But that's not every season of life. And so what I want to challenge you to think about is how much are you really serving the Lord? It doesn't have to be an official ministry. You don't have to have a title. You don't have to have a specific role, but in some sort of capacity, you should be working in ministry. And the three descriptors, Paul portrays Epaphroditus, not just as a brother, not just as a fellow worker, but look at the next thing he says. He says he is a fellow soldier. This word is only used twice in the New Testament. Here and in Philemon, uh, verse two, where he called... Uh, Archippus, his fellow soldier. Now the title, I love it because it reminds me a lot of our church. Uh, Paul is constantly using these military metaphors because remember, Philippi is largely military. They're very similar to where we're at here. You have military officers, you have former officers, you have people who are in the Praetorian Guard. And so Paul uses this metaphor here, the military metaphor, to communicate a spiritual truth. That Greek word, be patient with me here, let me try to pronounce it, stratiotis is the word. And you can hear the prefix su, which means with, but what I want you to hear is that root word, which is strategia. Strategia, what does that sound like? Strategy, that's where we get our word strategy, strategizing, strategic. Epaphroditus is with Paul, and what are they doing? They're strategizing how they can advance the kingdom. That is what a fellow soldier does. Their minds are consumed with advancing the gospel. 
working together to produce more converts, more believers, more glory and honor being given to God. The logical progression goes like this. Only brothers in the Lord labor for the Lord, and when you labor for the Lord, that labor is advancing the gospel. The more we serve Jesus, and this is just true, the more you serve Jesus, represent Jesus, talk about Jesus, the more opposition you'll get. The more spiritual warfare you experience. There are some people who don't want to be on the front lines. Don't, don't send me to the front of the line. Why? Because that is the most what? It's dangerous. It's casualties that happen up there. But Paul says, no, Epaphroditus, he's a fellow soldier. And then let me just say something by way of reminder. The devil doesn't care if you're not advancing the kingdom. He'll leave you alone. You won't face any opposition. I remember when I talked to uh, my buddy, Joey Pinberth, who we played ba basketball masters together. He left the church in Indiana, and I was talking to him about coming here, and I said, Joey, what do you think about this? Here's an opportunity. Um, I said, why did you leave Indiana to go plant a church in Seattle? And I said, what about all the challenges? What about all the difficulty? And you know what Joey said to me? Joey said, Dom, if I don't have a target on my back, something is wrong. So, wow, I'm putting yourself in the line of fire. But that was his mentality. He felt like the Lord was blessing the ministry in Indiana. They had pastoral staff. They were doing well there. And he wanted to go to a place, an unreached place, a difficult place, a place where Christ wasn't being honored. And that really spurred me on and encouraged me to come here to be a part of the work that God was doing here. But you see, for Paul, the Christian life and ministry, it involves a struggle. It is a battle. You need to understand you are in a war. It's not peacetime. Turn with me to Ephesians 6. You're familiar with this passage, but I just want to read it to you to, to remind you that we are at war with the devil and the world and false believers, false brethren, and we need to be strategizing in our effort to glorify our master. Ephesians 6, verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the might of his strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. It doesn't sound like a cakewalk to me. Therefore, Paul says, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, stand firm therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, having taken up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, also receive the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. When I was young, I used to watch the Arnold Schwarzenegger movies, and one of my favorite scenes in all these movies is when he would just gear up. He would just put on the jacket and put on the grenades and put on the, 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 the bazooka, and he'd put the, the, the face paint on, and it was like, yeah, he's getting ready to go. And I think as Christians, we just get up in the morning, we don't get into the Word, and we just go right into battle. Never putting our armor on. Never prepared to fight. 
Now, Paul says, look, as believers, we need to be soldiers for Christ's sake. Epaphroditus, as it says in 2 Timothy 2.3, he was a soldier. Paul writing to Timothy says this in verse 3 of chapter 2, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. He took those orders seriously. And in verse 4, it says, no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. And many of you who are in the military know that very well. But think about this. Epaphroditus had a family. He had responsibilities. He had a job. He had things to do. He was busy. But he said, yeah, I'll go. Well, but if you associate with Paul and if you go to Rome where he's in prison, you know you might be in prison too. Yeah, I'll go. Well, Paul is actually on trial. He might have his head chopped off. Do you still want to go? I'll, I'll go. A brother, a fellow worker, a fellow soldier. Paul writes in Philippians 1.7 that the Philippian church was standing with him in his chains in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. The only reason why anyone would do something so bizarre is because souls are at stake and because the gospel is precious. And so you'll make sacrifices and you'll work hard and you'll put yourself in the line of danger because the gospel is worth it, because Jesus and the message of Jesus is worth it. Do you think of yourself like that? Do you think of yourself as an elite force extending the kingdom? If you're not prepared for battle, you're, you're going to get demolished. I remember the very first time when I was doing youth ministry, uh, I took my kids to go paintballing. And for some reason, I thought uh, it was like um, airsofting. And I said, oh, I've done airsofting before. That's not a big deal. So I show up like out in the desert in the middle of nowhere. And I see these guys getting out of their cars. And it's like, man, they got camouflage on and helmets. And they've got all this padding. And they've got these big old guns. And I just show up like, I'm just going to pay my $15 and just give me a gun. And I'm going to show these little kids what's up. Because I've watched movies and I know, how to, I know how to handle this. I've, I've never felt so much pain before. The very first time, I'm, I'm, I'm joking around, I'm sitting down, and I, I peeked over this little bunker wall, and I, right in the face. And I had my helmet on, I got the, the paint all in my mouth, and I went back down, and I said, if this was real battle, I would be dead. Just like that. I mean, it just went, I'm like, that happens to us, though, when we're not prepared for battle. We go out joking around, thinking that we've got all the time in the world, thinking there's no real danger. And the same thing happens to us. And Paul says, no, we need to understand that we are in a battle. We are in a war. So put on the full armor of God. Fight as a soldier. Organize your life. Prioritize things in your life so that you are actually fighting and fighting well. Well, moving on from the relationship with one another, Paul mentions their relationship. But then he says to the Philippians that he was your messenger and your minister to my need. Let's look at these two words here as we close out verse 25. That word messenger, usually it's the word angelos. And that 
where it sounds familiar. Angelos is the word angel. Angel is just a messenger. Gabriel comes and brings the message to Mary that she is going to be with child. But here, it's not angelos. Paul uses the word apostolos. You say, well, why, why the difference? Why is he not saying angelos and saying apostolos? Well, he's not referring to Epaphras as one of the 12 apostles. We know that. Right? In order to be an apostle with a capital A, you have to have seen Jesus resurrected and then Jesus commissioned those men personally. That's not the case. But in a real sense, Epaphroditus is one that is sent. He's sent by the Philippian church. And the difference you see between someone who is just a messenger, an angelos, and someone who is an apostolos is that the apostle is sent not just with a message, but on a mission. And again, I want you to think back to the decision that Epaphroditus made to go all that way to serve the apostle Paul. We usually call someone like that a missionary. So Epaphroditus, he's, he's a missionary, sent by the church with special instructions to serve the needs of the Apostle Paul. He was their commissioned representative. And again, this is a big deal because as they're thinking, man, the Apostle Paul, he's in prison. He might die. He needs help. He needs support. Well, let's just sell him some money real quick. Well, how much does he need? Let's take an offering and we'll just send him some money or let's mail him some money. No, someone actually had to do that long journey. 800 miles, maybe, depending. Could be as much as 1,300 miles across land, across sea. If you're walking, it's going to take you seven weeks. If that's, that's if the conditions are good. If the conditions are not good, it might be three months of your life just traveling. And we'll learn next week that as he's traveling, he actually gets sick, really sick, even to the point of death. And instead of saying, oh, that's, this was dumb, I'm just going to go back, he presses on and he goes and he serves the Apostle Paul. Now, this is the point where we say, well, what kind of guy does that? I mean, if he's a deacon, that's what deacons are supposed to do, right? They're supposed to go and serve. That's the expectation. It doesn't say that he's a deacon. If he's a pastor, well, yeah, pastors are supposed to do that kind of stuff. But it doesn't say he's a pastor. He's just a normal dude, just sitting in the pew. Just like if we had a meeting right now and I said, anyone want to go? Anyone want to go? Who wants to go? Who wants to go? Send me. I'll go. That's Epaphroditus. He's just a trusted, zealous member of that church who has a heart to serve his brother in prison. Look, wherever the will of God takes you, it could be just across the street, it could be across the globe, like in Uganda, where our missionaries are serving the Lord faithfully. Are you ready to go if the Lord calls you? If he says, I want you to go and represent me, I want you to go and make the gospel known where it's not known, are you willing to go? You say, well, I, don't, I love the Lord, and I love the Bible, and I love the church, but I don't know if I'm ready to go. Epaphroditus, here I am, just send me. In addition to being a messenger, he was also a minister to Paul's needs. Look there at the last descriptor in verse 25. A minister. Remember, Paul, he's chained to a Roman soldier night and day. He's at the mercy of the Roman government. And even though he's under house arrest, 
Just a side note, when we think about house arrest, I think like, okay, that's not as bad as prison, right? It's not as like a jail or a dungeon cell. But when we think about our prison system, you get like clothes and they get washed and you get food and you get a little break and you get like recess. It's, it's kind of kind of cool. You didn't take care of. That's not how it was in the first century. They're not taking care of you. They're not providing for you. They're not giving you food. So Paul, he has no way of caring for himself. He needs help from the church. The church recognizes that. They realize that and they send him this offering. And so while Paul is waiting for the verdict from Nero, whether he's going to live or die, he says, I have no one else of kindred spirit with me except Timothy. And so imagine when Paul sees Epaphroditus show up. It's a piece of a church. The church and he'll, he'll say this later, is that he came and fulfilled what was lacking in your service to me. You all couldn't come, but you sent a representative, a missionary, someone who's going to love me and encourage me. And Epaphroditus probably brought clothes and supplies. We, we learn from his letter to 2 Timothy that he's asking Timothy, bring my books, bring my parchment so I can do some more studying. He probably brought some books. But what an encouragement, just his presence and his fellowship. What a blessing to have this man there. Epaphroditus was there to serve him, and that's what the word minister means. Actually, this word, we get our word liturgy from it. It conveys this idea of performing a service, like a religious service, a priestly service. The Philippians sent Epaphroditus out to perform, essentially, what was a priestly service. And we know it was a priestly service because look on over at Philippians 4.18. Look at the way Paul describes Epaphroditus coming to him. He says there in chapter 4 of Philippians, verse 18, he says, But I have received everything in full and have an abundance, and I have been filled, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent. And look what he says, how he describes this. He says, It is a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Now, the beautiful thing is that he not only received the gift, the monetary gift, the money, he received that, but more than that, the real gift was Epaphroditus. It was the incarnational presence of this brother to come and love and serve Paul. The money was helpful, but as we all know, money doesn't bring the kind of encouragement that a soul does. And Epaphroditus was that for Paul. He was the man. He wasn't just a mailman. He wasn't a delivery boy. He wasn't a pizza guy. No, he himself was the gift, and he comes to Paul's side, and he attends to his needs, and he lifts up his spirit, and he encourages him as he's sitting there in confinement, and he spurs him on, and Paul says, he came alongside me to help with the work of Christ. A minister is one who pours himself, pours herself out for the good of another. And listen, I know that sometimes you, like me, you talk a big game about wanting to do great things for Christ. And we say, I'm willing to lay down my life for Jesus. I love Jesus so much, I'll lay down my life for him. But the harder thing to do is just to do it every day, to pour yourself out just little by little by little by little. And moms, you know exactly what I mean. Because every day your kids do not go away. <laughs> it's just consistency of every single day 
loving and serving and being patient and being tender and being forgiving and being gentle. And that comes at a cost. You cannot do all the things that you would like to do. You cannot go all the places you'd like to go. You don't get the kind of rest and peace and quiet that you would really, really enjoy. But it is a sacrificial, sacrificial service to your children. And it is service to the Lord. The commentator, Fred Craddock, once said this. He said, to give my life for Christ, it appears glorious. To pour myself out for others, to pay the ultimate price of martyrdom, I will do it. I'm ready, Lord, to go out in a blaze of glory. And he said, we think giving our all to the Lord is like taking a $1,000 bill and laying it on the table. Here's my life, Lord. I'm giving it all. But then he says this, but the reality for most of us is that he sends us to the bank with that $1,000 bill and we get quarters. And then we go through life putting out 25 cents here and 50 cents there. Usually giving our life to Christ isn't glorious it's done in all those little acts of love, 25 cents at a time. It would be easy to go out in a flash of glory, but it's harder to live the Christian life little by little over the long haul. How true is that? Faithful Christian living, it might mean martyrdom someday. The way that we're going in the world, it might mean that for us living now. But for the majority of us, just like Epaphroditus, faithful Christian living is pouring our lives out just little by little every single day in love and service to one another. It involves giving out those quarters, reaching down into your pocket, and serving in children's ministry, in taking someone a meal, in driving a distance, even when you're busy, to counsel someone or to comfort someone. It's reaching into your pocket and saying, you know what, I'm going to take some time to pray. I'm going to fast on their behalf. I'm going to go with them because I know that their mother or father is not a believer and I want to pray while they talk to them during dinner. It's just every day taking out some change. Every day. It's easy to pull out that $1,000 bill. Done. That was great. So much harder to be with the coins. Let me ask you, church, are you willing to make those kind of love deposits every day? I know it's not easy. Jesus says it's not going to be easy. When he says, take up your cross daily, he's talking about serving others and it's hard. But that's the expectation. That's the model that Jesus sent. That's what Jesus did for you. And that's what he's empowered you by his spirit to do for others. I want to close with just a quote from Mike Riccardi. He says this, your life, Christian, is given to you by God for you to live in such a way that it's plain to everyone who sees that your life is not what you treasure most deeply, but that Christ is what you treasure most deeply. Your life is given to you, not so that you can slavishly cling to all, slavishly cling to it at all cost and gratify the desires of your flesh. He says your life is given to you so that you can lay it down in such a way that it makes it plain to the world that Christ is more satisfying that than all that life can offer and that all that death can take. Let me read that again. Your life is given to you so that you can lay it down in such a way 
that it makes plain to the world that Christ is more satisfying than all that life can offer and all that death can take. That is why life is given to you. And he says, don't waste it. So little is written about Epaphroditus in verse 25, and yet it's so profound. How great of an impact did this man have? All week I've been thinking about this guy and saying, Lord, just make me just like him. Just make me faithful. Make me willing. Make my heart ready to go anywhere you want and do whatever you want me to do for the cause of the gospel. Let's close our eyes and go to the Lord in prayer. Well, Father, here it is, Epaphroditus. What a sweet, sweet man. I'm glad we get another opportunity to revisit him next week. But Lord, when I think about Epaphroditus, he's got no sermons on record. He's got no books. There are no movies about his life. But yet, what a tremendous legacy of service and of love and sacrifice on behalf of others for the cause of Christ. And Lord, we don't know this man's mind. Maybe he was tempted to feel like all of his labor was in vain because his job was not maybe necessarily glamorous or in the limelight. And yet again, we're here 2,000 years later talking about him. Well, Father, may you help us to recognize that dying daily and taking up our cross is not comfortable. And if we want to live on mission, that might mean martyrdom. And if we want to be in service to you and to others, it's going to bring about suffering. And Lord, if we want to give in the cause of Christ, then we're going to have a gut check every now and then. But Father, because we are true brothers and sisters in Christ, and because we're fellow laborers and soldiers, we know, God, that you will help us to do this work, this calling with joy. Jesus, you are worth it. You are the greatest missionary, the greatest servant. Lord Jesus, we want to follow in your footsteps. We want to labor the way that you labored. We want to give ourselves in the way that you did. And so we pray that you would come and help us. Help us not to regard ourselves as anything, but help us to regard others as more important than ourselves. Oh, Father, increase our love for you and for one another and for a lost world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.